welcome to cii podcasts a uh, warm welcome to everyone i would like to highlight a few things uh, not only the way kamat sahab converted or transformed uh, icici from a lending institution or a development institution to a universal bank which uh, for a for those times and for an entity of that size is really what gave a lot of us inspiration that uh, you can significantly transform existing businesses i know that was one of my inspirations when i moved from bajaj auto to bajaj finserv and started working in 2007 with bajaj finance and our insurance companies but beyond uh, uh, even icici bank and kamath sahab's then non executive chairman role there to his uh, being the uh, first chief of the new development bank of bricks much broader sense of the region the world and in his current role as chairman of the national bank for financing infrastructure and development uh, there can be no better person than him to provide us with his thoughts uh, on corporate governance today especially for financial institutions uh we know kamath sahab has been uh, conferred with the padma bhushan sometime back one of our highest uh, civilian honors and it's great to have him here with us we all know that ethics integrity transparency governance and more recently equity are becoming more and more globally relevant in the area of equity we have seen the last two years and with something uh, like the current covid wave we are sadly not seeing that um we are also keen to understand that what's the impact of this broadly and also from kamath sahab more particularly in the area of financial services this becomes very important because financial services touches every other real economy sector and hence the codes that the financial services firms follow not only in letter but even in spirit are codes which they have the power to drive across practices in other institutions that they invest in or that they lend to what i also hope kamath sahab touches upon is what is the balance between doing this in spirit keeping in mind the evolution that different nations go through and keeping in mind practicality of implementing the code because the last thing we want to do is just be taking boxes and i and i hope he would touch on that as well is the role that technology is playing in how we run business in what it means for corporate governance technology is also enabling fraudsters to in an institutional manner attack our businesses cyber security is becoming one of the biggest risks and as so many global ceos say that one area of their business which has no budget is cyber security because it touches every part of the business and uh, and we know what kind of uh, uh, hits it can have to our businesses so how how can we leverage technology as we look at governance more broadly uh, i hope we get a chance to discuss that as well we also know that financial institutions deal with people's savings and hence people's trust they are also central to the economic activity and hence having a strong financial services industry is a prerequisite to having 
a strong industry uh, having a strong economy there is nobody better to provide us insights into all this than uh, kamath saab and he's going to speak with us uh, now as soon as i'm done but i must give an example of his insights and i don't know if you will remember this uh, small incident this is this was probably 2000 2001 and kamath saab had come to bajaj autos plant in uh, akurdi and uh, after we had, he had a conversation with our chairman that is my father and some of us i showed him uh, a new motorcycle bajaj autos first motorcycle that uh, we had designed the pulsar and he and i went on a spin we we had two bikes there so he and i went for a spin in the factory came back and he got off that and he said sanjeev this is going to be a hit and this will drive bajaj auto success and true to that bajaj auto's success in getting known now as a motorcycle company the genesis of that started with the pulsar and uh, and i was just recollecting that when i was thinking of how to introduce kamath saab and his uh insightful comments so with that let me hand it over uh, to kamat sir over to you sir thank you thank you uh, thank you sanjeev uh, thank you uh, uh, a lot of uh, memories as uh, heard you talk but i will just uh, touch on the last point that you made because uh, after the event i had a governance moment uh, indeed what sanjeev said is absolutely right spur of the moment i saw the bike and i said the uh, you know let me ride this and the both of us went for a spin in the in the factory premises and we got back and the bike had the looks and the muscle and the drive and uh, what i said was very sincere and i say from the heart indeed uh, that was a moment uh, which i will cherish um i think sanjeev has shared a few areas which uh, we can uh, talk about we will uh, we will explore those and if i don't touch it touch on it please uh, cue me in and uh, all the areas certainly i will uh, be happy to uh, talk about be it uh, equity in terms of everybody uh, being looked at equally being how the code uh, goes uh, or is used elsewhere the financial services business which i will touch on in my topic and the impact of technology and what we could do interestingly uh, in the indian context uh, rahul bhai was the first one who was asked to look at uh, setting up uh, the practice as it were and that is 25 years back or uh, so So we are looking at this with the 25-year hindsight. Yet, when I pause, I think the story continues to evolve. The story continues to be rewritten, continues to be written, not rewritten. A story has new chapters, something new happening, which needs to be addressed, and so on. So, one learning I had over 25 years is this is not something which is cast in stone. It evolves, and we need to change as things happen. I think that is something all of us here on this call and the wider uh, community of uh, business as it were needs to internalize that this will evolve as uh, time goes on for a variety of reasons some of which sanjeev has spelled out uh, happening uh, at this point in time so what i intend to do is uh, maybe talk through some uh, stories and uh, understand what the lessons from the stories are and then see how we have progressed against the stories uh, in terms of uh, the practice that uh, we have in today's uh, context and uh, in that process we will learn um of course we can learn from the past but we can also try to see what we can learn as a lesson for the future in this context so the first story uh, i could have started with the story from 
1997, I'll come to that, but I'll start with a story somewhere in between this period. And that is uh, the Lehman crisis. I'm not going to analyze the Lehman crisis in particular, but what are the dimensions of it as a lesson to us? And are there other lessons which are uh, coming up uh, in uh, this you know, same, I would say, with same color and same context? Um, so clearly everybody says that uh, the Lehman crisis is a story of uh, greed. Okay, we'll come and examine uh, you know, greed in what context. But we also need to see who failed, because uh, that is a lesson for the future. In the sense, uh, who failed and uh, what could those people who failed do going forward? Uh, you should also look at, uh, uh, in the sense of who failed, who created the product? Why was the product created? Actually, same questions as today for various products coming up in the market, in various areas of business, particularly financial services. Who created the product? Why did the product fail? Uh, in the Lehman case, it is uh, pretty straightforward to answer. There was uh, a wave of uh, subprime lending and uh, these subprime mortgages, uh, if you had to fuel it, uh, you needed financing to keep the ball rolling as it were. So somebody created uh, what I would call the collateralized mortgage obligation, which is bundling all these subprime mortgages and selling it to investors. And the moment you say selling it to investors, it goes into the marketplace and uh, goes into the marketplace. You get money and you can keep the cycle going. Well, uh, the interesting part I found here, and uh, this is practically from uh, sitting in discussions those days with teams across the group. They said, how does a collateralized mortgage obligation of a set of subprime mortgages end up having a rating higher than the individual uh, you know, the mortgage. So these are subprime. But we are told by wise people that when you put put them together, like, you know, like alchemy, suddenly you have uh, the rating of the CMO package getting to be higher than the individual subprime mortgages which comprise the CMO. Uh, so prudent thing was to stay away from them. So by and large, you stayed away from them. Not so prevalent in India, I'm talking of uh, the global uh, context. But clearly it caught fire and everybody uh, was into it. And then there were people who underwrote that and the market did it, and people in the way provided guarantees, so on and so forth. There was a whole set of, I would say, ecosystem built along this on a simple basis that how could you take something which was subprime and bring it to a much higher, uh, I would say, rating and then put it to market and if something happened later on, somebody held the baby. Well, in this case, uh, the issue was that the whole system uh, went into collapse because nobody could hold his baby because it was a giant and the whole thing was uh, a collapse which uh, could not be uh, shouldered and the governments had to come in and so on and so forth. So, in this case, um, one is the creators of the product, the people who uh, marketed it. But very interesting. Regulators also come in the sense that regulators ought to have asked this question How is the rating of this bunch of mortgages higher than the individual underlying mortgage? Let us understand it. I mean, there may be some magic, but let us understand it. But I don't think that happened. And then the people who rated these mortgages, in fact, and who said that indeed the CMO has a higher rating than the individual mortgage. So, what I term it as a failure of uh, 
what I would think is the boundary fence. You have this old English saying that uh, when the fence starts hitting the grass, what happens? The fence is kept uh, to keep uh, predators outside from coming in and eating the grass. But when the fence starts hitting the grass, what happens? So what we need to do is not look at the Lehman example and the stray Lehman example. And then every single thing that is happening around us, try to see, are there shades of Lehman moment? And uh, these shades, I call them as shades of grey. Because I'm sure at each stage, people who looked at it said, well, it is not white, but it is not black either. It is somewhere in between. And uh, the returns are uh, big enough. I'm happy to go along with it. The returns big enough, meaning the yield, the product is big enough. I'm happy to go along with it. In my view, it is grey. It is more tending towards clarity than uh, muddling. So I will go around it. So, in day-to-day -day life, are there you know, shades of grey which we need to examine from a corporate lens, uh, corporate lens as it were? Uh, that is to me the key. And if you ask this question uh, very honestly and answer it very honestly, is this grey? Is this uh, white? Is this black? Am I comfortable going forward with it? I think a lot of the mistakes that we otherwise could, have, could make uh, you know, will be avoided. And in all these, uh, the underlying uh, simple test would also be, will we allow greed to win? And will we allow the end to justify the means? If you answer these questions uh, uh, carefully and uh, with due thought, I don't think we will have a problem. Let's uh, take another uh, simple story. This goes back a little longer in time. And I think in this particular story, when uh, somebody uh, put it across in a way, the questions were put across. If I recollect, uh, Rahul Bai was there and uh, we had uh, what, 25, 30 doyens of uh, Indian industry in that uh, meeting. And this is a meeting that was in 96. It was, a, it was a session, it was not a meeting. A session conducted by our old friend C.K. Prala, uh, who was uh, the ideator of uh, India at 75. This is 96-97 and CK used to have a session, two-day session with about 25 industry leaders. CK asked uh, a very interesting question and uh, he said, who is the owner of your uh, company? Uh, there was a tendency, if you recollect that those days, even for the media, to say that you know, the predominant shareholder was identified as the owner and the rest of other shareholders and I'm talking of listed companies, really were not factored. So he asked hard questions to basically bring forth the idea that you are a fiduciary. Uh, you are not, a, and he was not addressing it to the 30 people. He was basically talking of it in a wider record. I think the 30 people in that group were, uh, I would think, uh, companies which you know, were at uh, the forefront of governance uh, even those days. Uh, so uh, I don't think he meant it. That. He meant it in a generic sense to drive home a point. He asked another question which is very interesting than you, and that's redounds me in my mind even today. He said, Take a company which earns a profit of 100, and let us say it trades at a PE of 200, uh, 20. So you've you got a market cap of 2000. He said, You know, a lot of Indian companies 25 years back have dual sets of books, and uh, it is not uncommon to see you know, 10, 20 squeezed out of that uh, company. You leave 80 behind, and your 20 is your multiple. The uh, value that you have is, uh, you know, 1,600, and 50%, let us say, is by the predominant shareholders. 
So your wealth is 800 crores through you know, this corporate vehicle that you have got. Because your profit is 80 into 20, 1600, 50% of that is 800. You took out 20. Now, if you had not taken out the 20, what would your wealth have been? Company's wealth would have been 200. You have 2000. You have a 50% share. Your wealth would have been 1000 instead of 800 now. And the basically 200, which is your incremental wealth, you have foregone to take 20. And he said to me, this to me is a lesson that you are not understanding what damage you are doing, not to your other equity partners, but to yourself by doing these sort of uh, things. And it was again, I must confess, not addressed to the, the group that was there. So they are wider. And you know, being a practitioner, you know, having looked at companies for uh, 30 years or so, uh, this indeed was happening. This was uh, what is common. And that, I think, uh, that story stuck in my mind for a long, long time. It's stuck, I think, uh, in a way, even later. And to me, that was the start of the, the whole governance practice in India, triggered by the, the Cadbury report. And very quickly, you know, uh, Raul Bai then headed uh, our own uh, court, as it were, and the lady laid it down. And uh, certain good things came out of uh, practice in the later years. And very briefly, I'll go through that, but I want to say that these again are not enough in today's context. So what came out of it? One of the things that uh, was articulated even then and globally is being pushed and India also being pushed is role separation. Role separation, I think, has progressed pretty far and uh, I think there are some dates uh, still where uh, we will need to uh, look at. But role separation is up. To me, even more important, was what I call the control framework that uh, came about in the various, uh, in, in the corporate structure. The control framework tighter in financial institutions. Uh, Sanjeev mentioned about that. We'll come to that in a moment. But nevertheless, equally important in other control framework predominantly run through risk, audit, compliance, and uh, the nomination and governance function. I think if these are robust, everybody can go to sleep. Uh, I think, uh, you know, peacefully. And, uh, I would think these, uh, I just mentioned because by, by now, uh, with efflux of time, these I think are uh, well uh, documented, well practiced and well documented, both. Practice I think is important, documentation is even more important in your annual reports, this is documented. And uh, to me, what does this signify over 25 years? I think uh, three things it, it signifies three things. One, it is, uh, signifies a mindset change in your approach to this entire framework of governance. Second, a discipline that comes following uh, this sort of change. And third is a recognition that there is a wider set of stakeholders whom we have to be cognizant of while we are looking at ourselves as a corporate. I'm still not addressing the question of equity that's a new engine. It is a much bigger issue than uh, the stakeholders that I'm talking about because you all know what stakeholders in the, in the Pentagon is, so they don't be talked about. But I think we today can go into a much wider way. We will talk about that separately and a little later. So this is what happened uh, internally at the corporate level. And I would think that that book, the playbook that was uh, put out that time, most in the Indian corporates have uh, met that playbook. We had the phrase, is it a tick box? It is not a tick box because if we know the tick box, it is very difficult to write up what you're writing in uh, uh, your uh, annual report. That takes 
a lot of time, effort, and having achieved something to put it down. So I think it has progressed. Could it improve? Certainly, everything can improve, and I'm sure it can improve as we go along. Now comes the next part of it, which is uh, we'll touch on some of the issues that Sanju uh, um, asked me to uh, talk about in the financial sector. That, along with his oversight within the corporate, you have oversight from outside, particularly regulatory agencies. Across corporates, we have a security market regulator who will take a look at what is happening and ensure that what is happening is best practice. And you have separate financial regulators. The markets is the security market regulator and the financial services industry by and large is the Reserve Bank of India. Now, what is happening there, I think is worth talking about as we go along. And, uh, we can then also see what are the new control structures coming in place. Uh, and this I put under the, what are the challenges going forward. I will straight away talk about the financial services business. Uh, this is where you have seen the largest intersection of technology and uh, historical business. Rightly so. I think uh, there is a lot of scope for technology to uh, pervade into this area for common good. Uh, in a way, I would uh, go beyond that and say, to really spread equity, to do it in an equitable manner, I think uh, this interface of technology and financial services is extremely important. Now, having said that, uh, you have, you now have a multi multiplicity of players coming in. Uh, you have players coming by the phrase Digitech. You have players coming in by the phrase FinTech. Uh, you have players coming in, calling themselves neobanks, which could be nothing but actually a digital form, you know, partnering with the fintech to provide services, calling itself a neobank. And of course, you've got the entire crypto debate. I don't want to get into any debates at this point because our time is too short and this is not the forum for that. But I put in context the complexity that is created by these four set of what I call new codes, new type of companies providing financial services. And uh, this provides what I would call a confusing field to marketplace. And uh, you know, it also causes confusion to uh, the regulator. We are a, an industry body. So if I were to just talk about crypto, and I don't want to give any of my personal views on it, but you have a situation where uh, the product is talked about every day in the media. I would think media ads are hosted and so on. And there are, of course, people evangelizing the Again, I have no comments. My comments can be for a separate day. Other end, you have the regulator who has come out clearly and categorically articulating its views on the crypto. Yet, it is now not a question of gray or white as far as the industry is concerned. They are going ahead on the basis that it is white. Now, the point is, tomorrow if there's a Lehman moment, who holds the bucket? Now, this is one issue. The industry is not mainstreamed as yet, but things sort of issues that can arise in today's context for which we need to be prepared and we need to be uh, answerable to as we go on. But as I said, this is not mainstream. So, you know, probably somebody who put money in uh, has done it with uh, whatever due diligence he or she is required to. But when you go to the other players who are competing with uh, extend players who are, you know, regulated and 
I would say appropriately regulated. In a right context, I would say heavily regulated, as is appropriate for this industry. And you come, you come with a new player. You, a new player comes in, who basically is staying just outside regulation. It wants to do everything that the regulated entity wants to do, and then you uh, will see uh, the outcome of it, uh, which could be adverse. Good, fine. Outcome becomes bad. Then you have a situation which begins uh, the question: Who holds the mess? Or who cleans up this mess? So I'm sure there is a wide range of things that could happen here. Uh, and uh, again, within financial services, and if you look at the entry points and the regulatory oversight, the tightness, I think is different for different. Uh, so let us see where and you mentioned technology. Technology to the good. Where is technology disruption most possible and easily possible? I think is in the, 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 the stock broking side. Then you have the asset management side, rightly so, because the evolution that has taken place in the marketplace, technology marketplace, so it's happening there. Then uh, it, it will happen into probably the insurance areas, and lastly into the most tightly regulated place, which is banks, uh, NBFCs and banks. So it will be in that spectrum in terms of what will happen. And we are already seeing, I think, uh, very bright, smart companies coming in at a uh, place where uh, regulation is the thinnest. And uh, again, they leverage technology, and I salute them for leveraging technology. Now, the issue that, that we need to look at is. It has not become a major issue, but we should look at it. Is what is the sort of regulation that uh, will, uh, you know, at each stage of the spectrum, as you move from broking to various things, uh, you know, what is it that you will uh, basically be looking at, and how do you uh, ensure the checks and balances are there? I'm coming to competition separately, but checks and balances are there so that you don't have a series of Lehman moments where uh, lack of Checks and balances is because you believe there is there are shades of grey and shades of grey pass, and uh, you know it slips through whatever are the you know wherever the check should have come in it slips through that, and then you have a moment. So I'm saying that this is a good time to uh, look at this whole structure, and in a context of the checks and balances, I'm not even talking of the regulator. I'm talking of internal checks and balances by these uh, new cores themselves. Then supplemented by the regulatory requirements, I think is what is required to prevent um, the same situation that came back about 12 years back. I keep going there because it's the best example that we have: of new technology coming in, new ideas coming in, new things happening, and then suddenly you're having it. Except that this is to me a much wider. Other critical thing here, uh, Sanjeev, is that uh, you know I touch on this small point that you made, but very important point. How does uh, you know the the code you said apply globally? I will use this of the code. How does this whole governance setup apply you know, globally and here? I would think we are at greater risk as a nation in this as a as a system and as a financial services marketplace. Why? Two reasons. One, there is a large market which is not addressed, where you can now address the good. At the same time. Advance of technology is so fast here, and uh, because of uh, two things: uh, connectivity and affordability. Again, to the good. So this could accelerate at a pace which it is taking time in the West. 
you know, you take any financial services product that is introduced in India and ask anywhere in Europe or in the US, is this product prevalent? The answer is uh, they scratch their head. Uh, but in India, it has become ubiquitous to the good. Again, I don't want to be misunderstood. It's to the good. It is only, the only point that I'm making is in this spectrum, checks and balances ought to be in place. Again, competition to me is secondary. I'm not saying that protect the competitor. I'm saying make sure that the new course, you know, grow in an environment where checks and balances are what is appropriate and what other than that. Beyond that, they compete. Of course, they should compete. Beyond that, it hurts an incumbent. That is life. Make sure that we do not lead ourselves into a situation which tomorrow we'll find difficult to. I've speak, spoken as plainly as I could because uh, beyond that gets to it. Uh, there may be new course who don't want to be a bank ever. To my knowledge, uh, I remember a discussion long back, going back maybe 17, 18 years back, just after PayPal became popular in the US. I remember a meeting in Basel of the, the, the Basel Institute, the BIS. <laughs> and uh, there, PayPal was an invitee into that meeting. There were you know, banking leaders from around the world, plus regulators from around the world, and PayPal was invited to basically ask a question, why don't you want to become a bank? I won't try to answer that question because if you have, if you have the freedom of doing what, uh, you know, in those days they could do as a, what they, what they could, they could do uh, using technology to extend the code. Why would they want to become a bank? To my knowledge, I think even today, uh, they are stayed away from becoming. If uh, you can behave responsibly, responsibly stay away and uh, not have the regulatory oversight, then that's a wonderful situation to be in. And this is something that we need to uh, talk about carefully in the context of our, our overall life. The linked issue here is the arbitrage issue. Because you should not be in a situation where a new co uh, is able to have arbitrage because they are uh, thinly regulated. Uh, you uh, work with uh, work in such a way that you see advantage of that. Again, that would be very unfair in the context of today's issue. So there is a whole lot of uh, uh, I think uh, chat required at an industry level uh, in this whole sphere uh, broadly, but. Uh, was put as the financial services sphere, uh, the interplay of regulation, the interplay of uh, governance, interplay of shades of grey, uh, arbitrage, and so on. And I think this could be the subject of a full, uh, uh, you know, I would say, uh, discussion day. Very quickly, um, uh, moving on to a few other what I call debates uh, in governance. I'll just touch on this. I won't open them up because we get into uh, several issues that uh, will take time to debate. Uh, this whole issue of uh, uh, the new tech companies going public. Uh, again, I think we need to look at, is there a layman moment here? I am not sitting on judgment. I'm not making value statements. I'm just saying we need to look at whether there is a whole uh, issue here. And here, the, the layman moment to me comes from uh, having to look at uh, a debate which came on uh, television, which, uh, which we can extend there or in other spaces what can be broadly termed as the private market versus the public market. Now, how are the private markets, that is uh, the private market which fund startups to the stage when they're going public and the public market which is you know, coming in thereafter. 
I think this whole debate is going to be a very interesting debate as we go along uh, in terms of uh, how do these two markets overlap, you know, what happens uh, when, uh, you know, a listing happens and uh, you lose value and so on. And I'm sure these will happen, uh, this, this will uh, be part of a debate. This is nothing new. We have seen this happen in the West during the dot-com bubble. We're probably seeing that again uh, in what is happening in the U.S. markets in the context of uh, uh, some of the new issues that have happened except that these issues have happened at multiple times the valuation that we saw during the dot-com bubble. I'm raising points which will arise in the future. Uh, what are the other points that arise? Uh, one, of course, in the Indian context, uh, the, the role I mentioned about the regulators. Uh, you also have the role of uh, what I would call the pro proxy advisory firms, which uh, needs to be looked at in context. I think uh, that also is, uh, in the governance context, an important uh, part. The very last two points that I want to make, uh, the, the points that I will make, just the points. One is the larger issue of ethics. And uh, within this, uh, you know, the issue of uh, equity that uh, Sanju talked about will come into play. Uh, <clears throat> ethics and the equity to me go uh, together uh, in terms of uh, how do you make sure that uh, the, the widest possible range benefits from uh, whatever is done in an equitable uh, manner and that to me then is uh, driving ethics forward. Uh, other issue which uh, clearly is important is uh, the gender issue and uh, the governance aspects of uh, gender. I think uh, today time is short. I will end by saying that uh, uh, to me my learnings over 25 years is that uh, governance is a process. It is not cast in stone and it evolves and uh, it is not that what you did in the past is going to be wiped away, that stays. You build and you evolve and you do, you do something more because uh, things around you have evolved. And that is life, I would think. It's an evolutionary process. And uh, as organizations change shape and character as we grow, and so does uh, the governance process change shape and character all to the common good as we grow. I'll stop here, Sanjeev, and thank you uh, for giving me this opportunity and uh, for uh, all everyone out there listening to be patient. Thank you. Kamat Saab, thank you for a broad set of comments and also as always your very candid views. Thank you once again. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.